So we're going to be looking at Psalm 130 today. We already read it um, as our call to worship, and we actually sang it as well. Um, So I'm just going to pray, and then we'll just jump right into it, all right? Father, thank you so much for your word. You've blessed us so abundantly by giving us your special revelation so that we can know you more. Father, I pray that as we look into your word right now, that your spirit would cause us to see your glory in the face of your son. Please use this time to transform us into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 130 is uh, one of the 15 songs of ascents. And we've been reading through these psalms as our call to worship for a while. Today, we just so happen to land on Psalm 130. Uh, But what are the songs of ascents? Many different interpretations have been given for these ambiguous words. But here are a few of the more probable explanations. The first one is that Uh, In the temple courtyard in Jerusalem, there was a wide stairway of 15 steps that ascended into the inner courtyard. And the Levites would stand on each of these steps and sing one of these psalms per step. Uh, Another explanation is that these psalms were sung on a high musical note or uh, they started on a low voice and steadily ascended higher. Another explanation says that these psalms were sung by the Jews who ascended from Babylon to Israel after the exile. And then a a last explanation here is that these psalms were sung by the Jews when they would ascend to visit the temple in Jerusalem um, three times a year for the festivals. And there's a number of other explanations that are not quite as probable, but of these ones, it's not even clear which one is actually true. Um, It could even be that all of them are true. Uh, But regardless of the manner or occasion in which these psalms were sung, they're grouped together for a reason. They all point to the Messiah in one way or another, as all of the psalms do. And this psalm is similar in context to Psalm 51, which we looked at last week. But the poetic style is slightly different. This psalm is much shorter, at only eight verses. And the couplets here are not a strict use of parallelism, like Psalm 51 was. Um, This one uses imagery. Um, The author is unknown, but he uses striking wordplay to draw pictures in the mind of his audience as he draws our emotions ever upward from the depths of despair to the heights of hope. In the first half of the psalm, we see a prayer of dependence on God as the author desperately pleads with God for redemption and reflects on the forgiveness he has experienced from God and the resultant fear of the Lord. The second half of the psalm is a response of hope for redemption as a personal commitment to hope and a corporate call to hope in the redemption afforded by the Messiah. So let's look at each of the pieces of this psalm and capture the imagery and emotions the psalmist intended. In verses 1 through 4, we read a prayer of dependence on God. The focus of these few verses is on God as a prayer to him, where the focus of the second half is on 
the personal response. The first two verses depict the psalmist's despair over sin. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The depth from which the psalmist cries is not apparent at first, but the context dictates that these particular depths are the depths of sin. This is a prayer of repentance, a prayer of true repentance. This is such sorrow over sin that a guttural cry for mercy erupts from the throat. Brothers and sisters, do you grieve over your sin like this? Do you cry out to God in the midst of your sin, in the depths of your despair, because you cannot overcome your sin? This is what these lines depict, the vivid imagery of a man trapped and calling out to the only one who can help him. This puts in my mind the image of a man at the bottom of a deep well with no way of getting himself out. This man's crying out for help to those passing by, but none listen to his pleas because they're all trapped in their own well. And the only one not trapped is offering his help for all who would look up and cry out to him. And he is able to save to the uttermost. This psalmist surprisingly does not ask that his cry for mercy be answered, but simply heard. The great British Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, It is better for our prayer to be heard than answered. If the Lord were to make an absolute promise to answer all of our requests, it might be rather a curse than a blessing, for it would be casting the responsibility of our lives upon ourselves and we should be placed in a very anxious position. But now the Lord hears our desires, and that is enough. We only wish him to grant them if his infinite wisdom sees that it would be for our good and for his glory. Amen. Now this prayer was not a request for some creature comfort or another. It was also not for the relief of some inconvenience or pain. This was a desperate plea for mercy from the depths of despair over sin. And that prayer is always answered if it's done so in faith. So for the psalmist and for us, it's not a matter of if God will answer this prayer, but how. How will God grant us mercy? How will he draw us up from the depths of our despair? How will he redeem us from our sin? The last two verses of the prayer of dependence give us the answer. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist prays, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Here is depicted the psalmist's fear born of forgiveness. We see his fear of the Lord, which is the result of him being forgiven. God grants us mercy and redeems us by forgiving us 
our sin stands in stark contrast to God's holiness. And the only way to be forgiven is for the penalty of our sin to be paid. The problem is that the penalty is death. You must die unless there's someone to die in your place. And that someone would have to be perfect so that their death could be on your behalf instead of dying for their own sin. This is what the sacrificial system was for. Preemptively granting forgiveness as a foretaste of the ultimate sacrifice of the Messiah. Now, here in Psalm 130, we don't get all those details. We get hints. We see the perfect justice of God as none of us would be able to stand if the Lord should judge us according to our sin. And we see the amazing forgiveness of God which produces fear of Him. But how, how does God's forgiveness produce fear? You'd think that being forgiven would produce gratitude, love, joy, or relief, but fear? The fear of the Lord is a theme that can be traced throughout the Bible. I'm not going into a biblical theology of the fear of the Lord right now. That would take much more time than we have. Um, but I've, I've traced the biblical theology of the fear of the Lord, and I'll just distill for us a definition of the fear of the Lord from its various uses. The fear of the Lord is a clean, evil-opposing, and life-producing obedience to God's law, which results from an intimate love, faith, and reverential awe of God. That was a big definition, I'm, I know. So basically, when we lovingly understand more of who God is, we are struck by His infinite worth, and that causes us to behave in obedience and fidelity. This is the emotional response of knowing God that results in our longing to please Him. That's the fear of the Lord. This kind of fear is very close to gratitude, love, joy, and relief. It's kind of like realizing you just had a close brush with death and the only reason you're not dead is the mercy of the one person who has the power to save you. This is very different from the dread of condemnation that often accompanies the realization of our sin. Spurgeon said, None fear the Lord like those who have experienced His forgiving love. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. So, the psalmist has moved in his prayer from despair to awe. He was crying out to God in, the, in despair over his sin, and now he is awestruck as he has realized the forgiveness of God for the sin that he could not deal with on his own. We should respond likewise to the realization of our sin and the gospel. Why don't we? 
so often we all just try to deal with our own sin. We don't like to admit it, but when we sin, we tend to think, oh no, not again. I guess I just need to read my Bible more and pray more that I won't fall back into this sin. Have any ever thought that? I've thought that. Reading your Bible and praying are very good things to do, but doing them will not overcome your sin. Jesus came to overcome your sin when he died on the cross for you and rose from the dead three days later. To overcome sin, you must rely on Jesus, not your own spiritual piety. The difference is subtle because the way you rely on Christ is through prayer and reading his word. Prayer and God's word are not the means of overcoming sin. They're the means of communing with the triune God. And in communing with him, we rely on him to overcome sin. Please don't fall into the trap of thinking that you just need to do more or be better to overcome sin. Yes, there is an aspect of putting off sin and putting on righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, but that's done in the power of Christ, accessed by prayer and faith. You don't need to pray longer or more often. You just need to pray, period. You don't need to read lar larger portions of the Bible or read it more often. You just need to read it, period. Falling into sin is not a result of not praying or reading enough. It's a result of being a sinner in a sin-filled world. Falling to sin is horrible, and we should grieve when it happens, but we will never be free of it this side of glory. We must constantly stay vigilant and fight against sin. Overcoming sin is a daily activity, sometimes even a moment-by-moment -moment struggle. As we rely on Christ and his strength for the power to resist the temptation to sin, Now, the first half of this psalm is a prayer of one who is utterly dependent upon God. He has faith that God has forgiven him, and that faith is not just lip service. The second half of the psalm describes the hopeful response of that faithful prayer. The psalmist begins this response with a personal hope for redemption. In verses 5 and 6, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Now this waiting is not whiling away the hours. It's not wasting time until something significant comes to pass. This is expectant waiting. Expectant waiting for God to act in a capacity that the psalmist could not. He says both that he waits and that his soul waits for the Lord. All of his being is waiting in anticipation of the, the Lord acting to redeem him from sin. How does he have such confidence that the Lord 
will redeem him. Well, he tells us. He says that it's in God's word that he hopes. God's word at the time was the law and some of the prophets and writings, a decent amount of the Old Testament. There was still much to be written, though, but when this psalm was likely written, the word of God was a reference to the law, the first five books of the Bible. I mentioned this last week, but in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, God described himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Also, many times in Leviticus and Numbers, ceremonial provision is given to afford forgiveness for sins through sacrifices offered by the Levitical priests to God. And redemption is also a common theme in the law. Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt, as Moses recorded in Exodus, and he was constantly referring back to that redemption in Deuteronomy. The payment for sin was clearly laid out in the law as death, and the psalmist had hope in God's word, which promised that God is forgiving and that he would redeem his people from their bondage to sin, just like he redeemed them from their bondage to Egypt. All of this is looking forward to the redemption that would come through the Messiah, but they would have to wait for the Messiah to come and redeem them. The psalmist says that his soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Now this is a vivid picture of the kind of waiting he's referring to. The night watchmen are the guards that have to stay vigilant throughout the night to protect the sleeping citizens from all kinds of dangers. It was a tough job. Most night, mo night watchmen would have longed for the morning when they could go off duty and get some rest. Though they longed for the morning to come, they could do nothing to speed the time along. All they could do was continue to keep watch and wait expectantly for the morning to come. The watchman also knew, without a doubt, that the morning was coming. This is the kind of hope that the psalmist expressed as he looked forward to being redeemed. He could not speed it along. All he could do was remain vigilant to guard against sin and wait for the time when he would be able to rest. The watchman waited for physical and mental relief, but the psalmist waited for spiritual relief from sin. That's why the psalmist says that he waits more than the watchman. He has more hope for redemption than the watchman has hope for the morning. The hope the psalmist had was looking forward to the redemption we have in Jesus. We have that same hope, though for us it's looking backwards in time. The Messiah has already come and redeemed his people through his death and resurrection. Where Moses, the psalmist, and all the Old Testament saints were redeemed by looking forward in faith to the redemption that would come by the Messiah, 
we are redeemed by looking back at that event with the same faith, faith that Jesus Christ, God's Son, has paid the price for our sin. We have more of God's word than the psalmist did, so we have a clearer picture of God's redemption. He looked forward at some ambiguous way the Lord would redeem his people, but we look back in the New Testament at how that redemption has taken place through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we also, we also look forward in hope to the second coming, the second coming of Christ when we will be resurrected to be with him forever. Right now, we are freed from our bondage to sin, but at that time, we will be truly freed from sin and death. Now, after this personal response of hopeful expectation, the psalmist proclaims this hope to all of Israel as a corporate call to, the hope, uh, to hope in God's redemption. This is the psalmist's joy heralding hope. In verses 7 and 8, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The reason he gives for Israel to hope in the Lord is that with the Lord there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. The word for the Lord's steadfast love is one that we've all seen many times before because it's all over the Old Testament. It's the Lord's chesed. This kind of love is the faithful, covenant-keeping love of God that makes our hope in Him more sure than a hope for the morning to come after the night. As sure as the night watchman is that the morning will come, we are more sure that the Lord will keep his loving promises. Amen. Now, there's four kinds of hope, depending on the importance and assurance of the thing hoped for. Now, if you're hoping for something and it's of low importance, it's not really that important, and it's of low assurance, it's not really sure that it's going to happen, then our hope is just wishful thinking, right? Like, I hope I get over this cough soon. Right? Now, if the thing we're hoping in is of low importance but of high assurance, then it's just basic longing, right? Like, I hope the night doesn't last much longer. We're sure the night won't last forever, but we long for it all the same. Or the third kind is if the thing we're hoping for is of high importance but low assurance. This is just foolishness. It's like, I hope this time I win the lottery so I can pay my bills. The odds of winning the lottery are very low, right? But it's super important to pay your bills. Relying on the lottery to do that is just foolish. Now, the fourth kind is high importance and high assurance, and that's biblical hope. That's the kind of hope we're talking about here. Like, I hope that Jesus will come soon and rescue me from this life mired in sin. We know it's going to happen. We are absolutely sure it's going to happen. And it's of super high importance, right? 
Now we have this last kind of hope because God is faithful to do what he has promised. With him is faithful, steadfast, covenant-keeping love. And that steadfast love gives rise to his plentiful redemption. His redemption is plentiful because he has the means to fully pay for the redemption of all of his people. The price is too high for us to pay for ourselves. It's not too high for God to pay. His redemption is plentiful. So plentiful that he will redeem all Israel from all iniquities. The price of Israel's redemption and our redemption was the blood of God's own son, Jesus, the Messiah. His blood is sufficient to pay the price of redemption where nothing else in all of creation could even come close. The sacrificial system could not afford redemption. It could only look forward to it as a shadow of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Our own effort cannot afford redemption because our best efforts are but filthy rags. Only Jesus' blood could pay that price, and he willingly paid it so that we could be redeemed by faith in him. Now, Israel's redemption was so sure in the mind of the psalmist that he states emphatically that God will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And one more quote from Spurgeon. He said at the end of this psalm, what a blessing that this is here promised in terms which remove it out of the region of question. The Lord shall certainly redeem his believing people from all their sins. Well, may the redemption be plenteous since it concerns all Israel and all iniquities. Truly, our psalm has ascended to a great height in this verse. This is no cry out of the depths, but a corral in the heights. Redemption is the top of covenant blessings. So we've ascended from the depths of despair in our sin to the heights of hope in God's redemption. We began with a prayer of faith consisting of despair over sin and fear born of forgiveness. Then we moved to a response of hope, a hope for redemption and a joy heralding hope for all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ for their redemption from sin. Perhaps the ascent from despair to joyful hope is what made this particular psalm a song of ascent. Now this psalm takes a problematic situation that all of us find ourselves in and gives us a sufficient answer. When you find yourself in the depths of despair over your sin, remember to go to the Lord in prayer like the psalmist did. Not because praying will save you, but because by prayer you rely on him to redeem you from your sin. And when the fight against sin seems hopeless, 
Go to the word of God for hope, like the psalmist did. Not because you will be redeemed by reading it, but because God has revealed himself in his word, and by reading of his steadfast love and redemption, we have hope in him. And when you experience his love and his redemption by being forgiven through faith in his son, Jesus, proclaim it to others like the psalmist did because all of us need the reminder that God is faithful to redeem us from sin and death and his payment is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you keep steadfast love for thousands. And you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And your steadfast love is an anchor for our souls because all too often we are faithless. But you remain faithful. And you will always love us, regardless of how often we fail. We grieve over our sin, and we long for the day when sin will be no more. But while we wait expectantly for that day, we rely on your forgiveness and your power to fight against sin. Your forgiveness causes us to fear because we know that you are the only one who has the power to forgive sins. And the extent of your payment for our redemption is beyond anything we could ever pay. As we wait expectantly in hope for your return, when sin and death will be no more, I pray that we would echo the response of the psalmist as our souls hope in your word. When life is hard, Lord, remind us of your love and faithfulness in your word. Drive us to your word because you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? We pray that you would stir within us a joyful desire to teach each other of your love and faithfulness. Lord, if, there's, if, if there are any here who have not experienced your forgiveness or your redemption, I pray that they would submit to you in faith that Jesus is the only one who can give sufficient payment for their sin. Please draw us closer to you and closer to each other through the power of your Holy Spirit and the blood of your Son, Jesus. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.